We'll be in Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. Before we get to our text, who likes a parade? Who likes a parade? Yeah, I see a couple hands out there. I love a good parade, uh, the floats, the bands, the atmosphere of excitement. As a kid, I probably liked getting candy more. You know, the candy gets, gets thrown from the parade, from the floats, and you run out and try not to get run over by a float uh, while you're trying to get all the good candy off of the, off the street. And as my family, uh, we always have uh, uh, Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade uh, watch uh, party before we start getting ready for Thanksgiving or uh, the Rose Parade, which uh, we always love to watch. But many years ago, Franklin Regional Marching Band uh, was in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And at that point, I was the uh, youth and family pastor at Murraysville uh, Community Church. And so uh, um, we knew several students who were in the marching band. And we were very excited that we were going to get to see them on TV marching in the, Saint, in, the, um, in the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade. And so we were at my in-laws that year, and we sat on the couch and got, you know, we're, we're getting ready for the parade, and we're all excited. And at the time, um, Ella was uh, about three or four years old, and, um, you know, Josh was just a, a baby, and so, but so Ella kind of, she knew what was going on. She was excited because she knew the big kids from church. That's what she called them and wanted to watch them on TV. And we were all excited. And then Franklin Regional Band comes on and they were on for maybe 45 seconds. <laughs> 45 seconds that we were waiting all day, all morning to watch. We didn't see any kids we knew. Ella didn't understand why they only got to watch 45 seconds. And so then it took me like the next hour explaining to her, you know, uh, TV production and commercials and why all these different things, trying to help her and us understand why we didn't get to see what we had hoped to see. We were disappointed. We thought, I, I even thought I kind of understood what to expect. I knew we weren't going to get to see them, you know, march, you know, for, you know, an hour, but I thought we might get to see more than 45 seconds of their routine. Well, in our passage this morning, we find ourselves as some kind of spectators in a parade of, of sorts, what's commonly referred to as Jesus' triumphal entry. The crowd and the individuals that made up that crowd thought they had Jesus figured out. They thought they knew what to expect. They thought they understood who he was and what they should expect from him. They were ready for a king to come. They were ready for his coronation ceremony. And while Jesus did receive a coronation of sorts that week, it was very different from the expectations of his disciples on that first day of the week. So let's read Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this. 
The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your word who has made flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we come to your word given to us, Lord, we pray that you give us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray that we would indeed know the King who has come and the King who will come again. Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. So this week we come back to our series in the Gospel of Luke, Certainty in Christ. We'll call it part three, right? This is like the third uh, part of Luke. We looked at the first quarter of Luke, then we looked at the middle part of Luke, and now we're in the, or the first third, the middle third, now we're in the last third of Luke. And just as a quick reminder, for those of you who may not have been here for the entire uh, series, that goes back actually uh, more, more than a year when we started this. We've taken some breaks along the way. A reminder that Luke was in many ways kind of like us. He wasn't a Jew. He was not an eyewitness to Jesus. He didn't grow up in the area around Jerusalem in that region. He was either a convert to Christianity himself or, historians believe more likely, his parents were converted and that he grew up in a Christian home. And through the generosity of a man named Theophilus, he travels to Jerusalem and the surrounding area to investigate the claims of Christians and write what he learns from the eyewitnesses that he encountered. And so we have an account of the life and ministry of Jesus that was written by someone like us, for us, to give us certainty in Christ. We wrapped up part two of Luke of our uh, part two of our Luke series back in September with Jesus prepping his disciples for the week that they are about to experience with him, and we'll look at that over the next three months. He did that by telling them a parable, what is referred to as the parable of the minas. The ruler goes away and gives his servants each a mina, and after a long time, he returns and finds that there are citizens of his kingdom who don't want him to be their king. He also finds that his servants used the gift of the mina in ways that grew the wealth of the ruler, and yet there was one who didn't use the gift because he was afraid. And we were asked from the text, are we ready for the return 
of the king. We saw that Jesus is the true king and he will return to judge, judge his servants, but also judge his enemies. And our text picks up on the heels of this parable, right? The text says, and, and when he had said these things, he went ahead. These things meaning this parable that he has just told is the beginning of the final week of Jesus' ministry before he dies on the cross. But Luke has been pointing us to this event since chapter 9, verse 51. To this moment in time, Luke has been pointing us here when Jesus arrives in the city of his destiny, when Luke says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. This is something that Jesus has been preparing for, according to Luke's gospel, since chapter 9, verse 51, which would be over a year. For Luke, Jericho marks the end of Jesus' ministry outside Jerusalem and his entrance into the city that is the beginning of the end of his earthly pilgrimage. And we know that prior to this, Jesus has healed and taught in Jericho, right? He healed the blind man. He was along the road and Zacchaeus cried out to him. And he went to Zacchaeus' home, and Zacchaeus' life was changed. He traveled from Jericho to Bethany the Friday before what we call Palm Sunday now, the day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And according to the Gospel of John, he arrived there and raised Lazarus from the dead. And so the scene is set for this final week, like the scene in Tolkien's The Two Towers just before the epic battle of Helm's Deep. King Theoden says, and so it begins. Jesus is about to embark on an epic battle of universal proportions, a battle against Satan, sin, and death. And so it begins. As we come to the text We are being confronted once again with our response to who Jesus is and our preparedness to receive him as king. This is the meaning of the season of Advent that we just celebrated, our readiness to receive Jesus as king. And what we'll see in our text that Jesus is this promised king. And we see a preparation and a response. First, the preparation, verses 28 through 35. Jesus sends two disciples and shows his omniscience or all-knowingness and the control that he will exert over the events that are about to occur, right? Many people want to say that Jesus, this just kind of happened to him, right? Wrong place, wrong time, you know, Jesus didn't quite understand what was happening and And then he realized what's happening and then, you know, realized, oh, this is a a way for me to engage God's plan. No, this is something that Jesus has control over, not just in this moment moving forward, but for his entire life and ministry. He will exert his will 
over the events that are about to occur. The will of others are not exerted upon him. It is his will exerted, his understanding and knowledge, his omniscience of what is happening. God's plan of salvation is quickly moving towards completion, a plan that is unstoppable and will take its ordained course as Jesus draws closer and closer to Jerusalem. And the events happen exactly as Jesus predicted, right? He tells his disciples, go to the village and untie this colt that's, that's tied up. And if anyone, which of course somebody's going to ask you why you're untying a colt that doesn't belong to you, here's what you tell them. And so everything happens just as Jesus predicted. And this not only reinforces the fact that Jesus is in control and knows what is to come, but it reminds us of the important prophetical aspect of these preparations, which has to do with this cult that Jesus tells his disciples to go and retrieve for him. The cult represents both the royalty of Jesus and at the same time his humility. This understanding comes from the prophet Zechariah in chapter 9, verse 9. It was read earlier prophecy says, behold, your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation as he humble and mounted on a donkey or a foal, the colt of a donkey, depending on how it's translated. And yet there is considerable tension, the tension between a king that is both royal and humble, a tension Jesus embraces in himself and will now demonstrate his actions in Jerusalem where he will be crowned as king with a crown of thorns on the cross. The focus of his humble humiliation and shame. And as Jesus journeys into the city, these disciples help prepare the way by spreading their garments on the road before him. Jesus enters as the king. The royal acclamation is a fulfillment, not of public emotion, but of Old Testament prophecy. The king is coming to receive his kingship by means of a cross. Something that his disciples have not yet understood and will not understand it until Jesus has risen again from the dead. Notice in the preparation that Jesus, he is certainly prepared for what is to come. He is in control of the events that are about to happen. But even as he is prepared, he includes, even commands his disciples to be an integral part of this preparation. They are the ones who go to retrieve the cult. They are the ones who are to proclaim that he is Lord who need, he is the Lord who needs it. They go before him proclaiming that the king is coming. And while Jesus is in total control of all that will transpire, he is now in control, reigning as king over all things he still sends his disciples to prepare for his coming. 
right? Just as he sent his disciples before him in this context and will send them out after his resurrection, he continues to send his disciples as the reigning, ruling king of heaven. He continues to send us, his disciples, to prepare for his coming, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, the good news that a good and righteous king is on the throne and his kingdom will have no end, that this king has given fully of himself even unto death and has risen conquering Satan, sin, and death. He sends his disciples still today not to loose a cult, but to proclaim the loosing of the powers of Satan, sin, and death. And so, in preparation, Jesus enters Jerusalem. And not only as he prepared and prepares his disciples and even us to go, there is a response that is required, a response that comes from Jesus entering in in this fashion in verses 36 through 40. The picture here is vivid. Jesus coming down the Mount of Olives, overlooking the city from the summit, one of the hills on the east that overlooks the temple area. And as he comes into view of the temple, he receives the shouts from the multitude of disciples. Notice it's a multitude. Luke says it's not just a handful, right? It's not just the 12. It's not just the 72. It is a multitude of disciples. Luke focuses on the disciples who praise God and rejoice over the miracles that God has done. As he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Luke intentionally points out the focus on Jesus' miracles. How, how could they not, right? They've just seen Jesus raise a man from the dead. But we know that from the Gospel of John. What's interesting in the Gospel of Luke is there have only been six miracles from the time Jesus sets his face to Jerusalem. And so Luke is actually kind of showing us a little bit of a irony here, that they have focused so much on Jesus' miracles, only being six of them that Luke has told us about. These disciples say the right things, but Luke wants us to know that they still don't quite understand. They've, they've, they've figured out that Jesus is the Messiah. They've figured that out. How could you not? 
when you've seen someone raise a man from the dead and all that they have seen and heard prior, they have figured out that he is the Messiah, the promised one. But they have not yet figured out what that actually means. And so Luke wants us to know that they do not yet fully understand Their sense of Jesus' kingship does not grasp the humility implied by Jesus in his fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Nor do they fully understand the significance of their own use of Psalm 118. At this moment in salvation history, right, we read from Psalm 118 in uh, in our call to worship this morning. We read about Jesus, about the uh, coming of, the, of, the, of God. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice. Save us, we pray, O oh God, O oh Lord. O oh Lord, we pray, save us, success, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God. We read that, and that is what they use And yet, earlier in the psalm, we find out that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. There is much to rejoice in, much to hope in. And yet, they have not yet fully understood who Jesus is. They are rejoicing in the coming of the king. And yet they, and using the words of Psalm 18, they still don't quite understand who this king shall be. Right? All the gospel writers use Psalm 118, the, recounting what the people have, have said as Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And they will use the same song, the, the uh, synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, will later on in just a few verses, a few chapters, reminding us that it is the stone the builders rejected that becomes the cornerstone. And here we have another hint of how the kingdom of God functions, as we've seen throughout the gospel of Luke. In the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the order of the kingdom is suffering before glory, humility before exaltation. And the use of the psalm is significant because in Jewish worship, it was seen ultimately as celebrating God's plan. One day, the one, the promised one, would be greeted as coming in the Lord's name, would be the Messiah. The psalm was used in the Feast of Tabernacles for just this reason. And so joy and cries of peace surround the verses that the people use here. Think about the declaration of peace that we have just heard in the season of Christmas and Advent. At Jesus' birth, is declared there is peace on earth. And as he enters Jerusalem for his Passion Week and resurrection, what do the people say? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. 
peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The angels proclaimed peace on earth, goodwill to men. The disciples declare peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The peace of Jesus' birth, the peace that Jesus' death will bring, earth and heaven are joined together in peace through the incarnation and atonement of Jesus Christ. Jesus' disciples announced to Jerusalem that as this great week or holy week or passion week begins, there is peace that comes through the suffering servant, Jesus. The peace whose source is Christ's death and resurrection. We also see not only the response of the disciples, but the response of the opposition of the Pharisees. As Jesus enters Jerusalem, we see their response. The last word of the Pharisees in the Gospel of Luke is here in chapter 19, verse 39. Teacher, rebuke your disciples. It is the final opposition by the Pharisees from the result of Jesus' disciples assigning the messianic titles, the coming one and the king, followed by in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees reject in Jesus the fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And Jesus responds by saying, if they are silent, the very creation will cry out and worship. The very creation, uh, worshiping God is a subject of many psalms. And Jesus acknowledges that here in his rebuke of the Pharisees, that it is the creation that will cry out even if we do not. And so Jesus enters Jerusalem with a divided reception, one that he has received throughout the gospel. Some have received him with joy and others have rejected him. And this should comfort his disciples like us when we experience both acceptance and rejection in his name. But it should also call the attention of those who reject Jesus, whom Jesus weeps over just as we'll see him weep over Jerusalem, the city of his rejection next week. Jesus weeps over those who reject him because he knows what is to come. The same fate that will come to Jerusalem comes to those who reject the king. Yet there is still time to turn from rejection and receive him as your king. And so it begins.
the weak that will change the world. In fact, it will change the entire cosmos. If we listen to Jesus and to the creation, Luke says, it is obvious who is truth and right. The side of the one who came to give his life as a ransom for many is the side that I pray we are all on. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word made flesh in Jesus Christ, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Our King, Lord God, I pray that you would help us to be prepared. And Lord, as we are prepared, let us be like the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, prepare you the way of the Lord. Let us proclaim your mighty works. Let us tell of the hope and peace and love that is in Christ. Lord, God, we pray that our response would be of reception and not of rejection. Lord, I pray if there are any here this day who have not come to know Jesus as their one true king, as their Lord and Savior, may they not reject but receive him. We pray this in Jesus' name.